Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines. I'm Neil Bradley, my co-host, Joe Quinn. Hi there. You're listening to the SOT Radio Network. I believe you're also viewing it, some of you, for the first time. Hi, everyone. Hello. We are going to be talking this week about, well, the last week's craziness. It's kind of a weekly affair now. Something happens, something major. We have a stream of events that took place in the Middle East. A string of events, rather. Um, I think they need some explaining because... There's a lot of misconceptions out there. A lot of misconceptions. And, you know, it's not just in the mainstream, which obviously lies. Well, it's always misconceived by them on purpose. It's always. But even in the alternative, the, the people who are, you know, smart and they're watching um, closely, like us, they're still not getting a lot of things. They're know? not really thinking about it. No. Um, they're thinking too well, they're, emotionally, they're, let's say. They're, they're thinking about it, but they have their beliefs about right. how it's supposed to happen. Right. And then it doesn't manifest the right. way they thought it was going to. And then they go right. and they throw all the papers up in the air. I will confess, though, I did a bit of that myself last week because I did not understand how the sequence of events we're going to discuss happened. Thankfully, Joe here um, came in and said, Neil, he, he got the fish here and he, he hit me across the head with it. Yeah. And he said, you're not thinking. And then he, the fish, the fish <laughs> sorts everything out. And then I, makes saw, everything better. I saw the light. So, um, yeah, it's kind of like a, a similar situation to what happened a month ago, I suppose, with the, what we called the Fucus airstrikes in Syria. Mm, kind of like a follow-up. A follow-up. Right, okay. You're going to explain like, why it's a follow-up. Yeah. I've got a question for you about that, but let, let me just give first a brief timeline so you have the sequence of what happened in your head. On Tuesday, Trump announces, Right. we're pulling out of the Iran deal. Iran is a no deal. Um, and we, well, we more or less got a heads up about yeah. that that was going to happen when Merkel and Macron went over and had a visit and, and uh, through Merkel being very uh, pessimistic, let's say, about it and making it pretty clear in her 20-minute speech to, to, to the press, basically. That was the only thing she did when she was there in her three-hour trip. Uh, she pretty much made it clear. Well, she made... She talked about, well, the president will let, you know, President Trump will let you know what's going to happen as far as the Iran deal goes on May 12th or whatever. Um, and she said, but it's clear to us, Germany, that we need to, uh, we can no longer um, look to America for kind of to protect us or for leadership or to follow America's lead. And we've done that since 19, uh, since after the Second World War, but now that's all gone. I mean, that right there made it very clear that, uh, that Trump was going to back out of the Iran deal, that he had conveyed that to her, you know. Trump afterwards talking to the camera saying, well, you're going to find out. And I'm like, Merkel just told us, you idiot. Jesus Christ. And then, of course, Macron before him, before her, the way he was sucking up and, and pleading to Congress. You know, you could sum up Macron's speech to Congress a few weeks ago there as, uh, please don't leave us. We're no good on our own. Um, that's pretty much what he said among the kisses and the, and the sucking face sucking and stuff that was going on. Right. Um, so anyway, yeah. Uh, right. So Tuesday the, the, the is, Iran a, is yeah. a big yeah. announcement. In fact, got the Iran on May 12th, yeah. Yeah. Tuesday is a big announcement. Wednesday, no, excuse me, the same day, Israel sends up red flags by issuing a warning to any of its citizens in the Golan Heights to be prepared to drop into bomb shelters at a moment's notice. That's Tuesday. Right. Wednesday is Victory Day in Russia. That's when Netanyahu's in Russia to as guest of honor mm-hmm. uh, at the Victory Parade and then has a one-on-one meeting with Putin, apparently, that same day. Right. 
Thursday then, early morning, right. between 1 and 3 in the morning, right. local time, the Israelis supposedly re- uh, respond to attacks coming from Iranian forces on the Golden Heights from inside Syria. And they, that's when they launched their 60-some missiles, mostly from fighter jets. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the rough sequence of events. But, of course, uh, well, what, if, what if any connection, direct, what is the direct connection between them? The timing, of course, we've all, Israel's timing of what it does is always, it always stands out because it always seems to happen close to other major things. And you do have to wonder what it is. So is there any connection between Trump making the announcement that everyone knew he was going to make anyway yeah. on the Tuesday and then 24, 36 hours later doing this in Syria? Yeah. It's kind of like someone, uh, one person calling another person a very bad person, you know, and then their friend. So, so you have two people standing in front of one person. One of them says to the one person, you're, he tells everybody, you're, he's a very bad person. And then the other one slaps him in the face just to, just to basically make the point. You see, I mean, why would I slap him in the face if he wasn't a bad person? So basically the so-called, or the, the Israeli attack on quote-unquote Iranian targets in, in Syria was just big, big upping. If that's can I use that as a verb? Mm-hmm. It was uh, that was Ara- Israel big upping Trump backing out of the Iran deal. I.e., it's you know just to give it a bit of extra legs. It struck, kind of thing. It struck me as evidence provided by the Israelis of Trump's whole preamble to right. his talk, which right. was Iran very blah, bad, blah, blah, blah. terrorists very bad, very bad. So Israel goes, okay, we'll just punch Iran in the face right. in Syria, right. and then Iran will respond, and then look. Trump's right, very right. bad. Right. It was also, so yeah, so that's pretty much what it was. I mean, it was pretty transparent that that's what was going on. Uh, so we have every reason to disbelieve the Israeli claim that they were attacked by the Iranians, uh, by, you know, that Iranian missiles or rockets or whatever were fired into the Golan Heights. There's no real evidence for that. Um, and Iran has denied that it did that. And that falls into the category of Assad gassing his own people on any number of occasions that you want to, like, for example, when the UN weapons inspectors are coming in, he gasses people that day, I think that was 2013 in Ghouta, uh, the day that the UN weapons inspectors were coming in to check if Assad had been using chemical weapons. He decided to use chemical weapons because he's an idiot. Uh, so obviously he didn't. Um, that's called a provocation. <coughs> uh, and also, uh, so there was absolutely no reason for Iran in the current geopolitical climate and the stuff that's happened over the past few years for Iran to unilaterally uh, fire some missiles at uh, the Golan Heights the other night. Obviously, it just <laughs> didn't happen, basically, you know. But, of course, it serves as a pretext for Israel to carry out its obviously pre-planned, well in advance uh, attack uh, on Syria at night with mainly using Israeli jets <clears throat> and targeting. If you, uh, I mean, the Israelis provided this little map of all these little explosion areas across mostly um Western, Western Syria, around Damascus and north towards uh, Homs uh, and that area. Um, there was maybe 30, 30 or 40. Uh, the Russian Ministry of Defense confirmed more or less roughly the same number. You're not going to get an exact number, but more or less the same. There was a large number, significant number, several dozen strikes or targets were hit or attempted to be hit um, on that night. And... So the Israeli narrative was we were hitting Iranian targets in, in, in Syria. First of all, it's unlikely that Israel would know uh, what an Iranian target is in Syria or you know what constitutes an Iranian target. 
Um, what we do know, what they did admit, apart from saying using their vague Iranian targets, they said that they also hit five Syrian air defense systems. And the reason they did that was because, well, we're attacking Iran, but we had to attack these five Syrian air defense systems because they fired at our, our warplanes. They got in the way of our yeah, well, humanitarian well, bombing. Well, they officially said they fired at us, which Israel always only responds to uh, attacks, right? It's, it's only defending itself. So they, they, the Syrian air defense systems, according to Israel, fired at them. But that sounds implausible, sounds like nonsense, um, because uh, the Israelis are smart enough to know, and based on the way they carried out this attack, it happened um, using mainly Israeli jets flying at high altitude. Some of them, many of them even, maybe barely left Israeli airspace or only only briefly went into uh, Syrian airspace. Uh, and the <clears throat> Syrian air defense systems that were targeted, five of them according to Israel, uh, are not equipped, they're not type of systems that, um, that are designed to shoot down airplanes. Uh, they're designed for low altitude things like Tomahawk cruise missiles. That's what they're designed for shooting at them specifically there. We're talking here about the Panzer S-1 or SA-22 uh, system. And it's a fairly new system developed by Russia, given to the uh, Syrians over the past few years, uh, specifically to repel uh, kind of Tomahawk cruise missile and low-altitude missile attacks. Uh, and it was those systems, uh, among others, that were used to shoot down about 70% of the Focus France, UK and US Tomahawk cruise missile attack, about 100 cruise missiles last month. And all of the evidence suggests a good number, at least 70% of those were shot down by these systems. Now, it was these systems that were targeted by Israel one month later, uh, i.e. the other night on, mm-hmm. on, on May, on May uh, 12th, May 13th. Uh, so that's why it seems more likely that this there was, it was a propaganda. Uh, it's a connected operation. Yeah, there was a propaganda uh, point or goal being achieved, which was claiming that Iran attacked us and we are attacking Iran and Syria, i.e. Iran's in Syria, Iran's evil, um, at the same time as Trump backs out of the, the, the Iran deal. And the other aspect was to retaliate against those Russian-delivered Syrian anti- anti-missile systems, Panzer S-1, and, and other older uh, Soviet systems that the Russians had retooled over the, or upgraded over the past few years, uh, to retaliate against those because they were the ones that shot down all of Focus's uh, <laughs> missiles last month. Um, so it, it kind of like it was an attempt to well, it was it was it was payback basically. I mean, these people are pretty petty in that respect, and it was payback against that because I mean, while nothing was said at the time, we I wrote an article about it, and uh, and we there was a lot of talk about all those missiles being shot down, and that was a real kind of slap in the face, you know, talking about fish slapping people in the faces. That was a big fish slap in the face of of the Americans, the French, the British, and particularly the Americans who who you know, directed the the Tomahawk cruise missile attack to have 70% of the missiles shot down. And they know that 70% of their missiles were shot down. They don't like that fact. They like to keep open the possibility of firing a bunch of Tomahawk cruise missiles at any time they want, at any country they want, and them uh, having an effect, having the desired effect. But they didn't have the desired effect last month. So Israel, which is more or less joined at the hip with with the U.S. military, I mean, the Israeli military in Israel is... To a large extent, the U.S. military. There's all sorts of advisors and uh, planners embedded with the Israeli military. All of their weapons are supplied by the U.S. It's basically in a, it's basically an American outpost. Israel mm-hmm. is an American outpost in, in the Middle East. Um, so this was a, effectively a U.S. military operation in conjunction with Israeli, Israeli U.S. <coughs> against the systems in Syria that shot down America's Tomahawk cruise missiles last month, while at the same time uh, giving more legs to the idea, you know, 
a propaganda offensive about uh, the evils of Iran uh, in Syria. The, the, the claims were huge. I mean, Trump-style huge. The claims were it was a, so successful, it was the Israeli media is gushing about it. And Defense Minister Lieberman said, we have, he qualified it, which is not like him. But still, it was a grandiose statement. He said, we've knocked out almost all of Iran's military infrastructure in Syria. But there is none, really. There's no substantial. There are Iranian personnel. There are probably Iranian proxy forces. But mm. there is no Iranian military in, in Syria. Mm. That's the first lie. Okay, that's the first propaganda layer. But in the second one, in the specific of this operation, the Russians immediately said over half of them were successfully or, repelled. Yeah. Well, well it's not yeah. 70%, but it's still... Yeah. Well, look, the, if you bring it down to 50%, uh, they only were able to shoot down 50% of them. That's because... They weren't Tomahawk cruise missiles. They were fired from Israeli jets at high altitude, uh, although they have to obviously reach low altitude to get their targets. But it gives them a bit of an edge. And also it was a surprise attack. Uh, the last month's Tomahawk cruise missile attack by Fukus was uh, was well uh, signaled in advance, uh, uh, well in advance, a couple of days in advance. So the Syrians had lots of time to prepare and everybody was manning their anti-aircraft stations. And that's why... Well, I want to ask about that because there's a video put out by the Israeli Air Force mm. You picked it up and it's included in your article and it's um, – the camera's apparently mounted on the head or side oh, of the cruise missile and it's going down to what is clearly a Panzer S1 system. Mm. Um, presumably that was gone. But in, in the in the lead up to it uh, descending, we can see guys hanging around mm. going into the system. Right? They haven't been operating, right. which exposes the lie that – the, exactly. the small lie, the operational lie that this system had first fired oh, was on one the Israelis. Of the ones that fired on the Israelis, yeah. It wasn't... Uh... But also beyond that, does it not suggest... It also, yes, suggests they were surprised. Right. That particular crew should have right. been on the alert, right. right? They weren't expecting the attack. It took place over a couple, of, a couple of hours. I don't understand still why they were surprised. If the Israelis had warned Golan Heights about an Iranian attack 36 hours before... The Israelis claimed, and it's, it's plausible given that Netanyahu has just been in Moscow, mm-hmm. that they had um, worked this out through a deconfliction line between Israel and Moscow beforehand. That suggests that the Russians knew something was about to happen. Mm. Possibly. So, but weren't sure. But, I mean, again, that you know, the Israelis, I suppose you can't really trust Israelis. But there's obviously that's something else we need to talk about is, is what's going on with Putin and, and Netanyahu and why so many people... Uh, or, or the, the expectations of many people that uh, that there's some, or the belief that, of many people that there's something wrong there. You know what I mean? That this is what is this is Putin doing? Doing doing a deal with the devil? You know? Um, well, the scales apparently fell from some people's eyes last week, and Putin is actually a Zionist puppet. Right. Well, there's. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example of one website uh, that, that that I'll just show here. Um, it's Russia Insider, but. It's, but it's actually from the Saker. Uh, it's written by the Saker, and it's um, the title. It's just from from actually May 11th, whatever. Uh, but it sums up the the reaction of of many people uh, in the alternative media, anyway, um, about this kind of uh, the way Russia is conducting itself. In respect, with respect to Israel in the Middle East and uh, the expectation that uh, Russia should be doing a lot more to handle or deal with Israel. The title of it is Russia's lack of reaction to Israel strikes on Syria is disgusting. Uh, uh, there's a moral <laughs> connotation there. That, yeah. 
and the, they should have done otherwise. And the Seeker says, there's no doubt in my mind that Netanyahu has just publicly thumbed his nose at Putin and that Putin took it. Um, that's pretty much what he says. Um, he says, Russian reaction is totally disgusting. There was nothing, absolutely nothing in the way of reaction. So, um, why didn't yeah. Putin say no, yet and send the cavalry in why didn't he smack just, Israel right wh- there? Why didn't he just deal with all the bad? Why doesn't Russia just come in and deal with all the bad guys and make the world, uh, turn the world into utopia? Yeah. P- peace and bunny rabbits and flowers and stuff. Well, it's a bit more complicated than that, you know? I mean, maybe that's a shock for people to... To, to realize that the world is a much more complicated place and what Russia uh, is trying to do, certainly since Putin came to power and certainly over the past 10 years since it's, you know Russia has really started to exert its influence is to uh, kind of overturn or, or change the global order, a global order that has existed at least for at least 70 or 80 years. Uh, and if you wanted to nitpick, you could go back, you know, a couple, a hundred, of, a couple of hundred years. Right. Even if you go back into the British Empire and stuff, through the establishment of that current of the current world order we have today, why it's a Western-dominated uh, world, you're talking about really hundreds of years of history, and uh, you know, kind of a uh, kind of a spread of influence that has has gone on, began that long ago, and has proceeded since then. So to to, to to overturn that or to change that, um, it's not not simple. It's not a, it's not the kind of thing we can just go in with a with a big stick and and, and sort it all out. You know, um, specifically in in the Middle East in Syria. Um, I mean, there's last year the Russians um, released a draft constitution for for Syria, and it's very interesting reading. It talks about uh, some form of federalization including some form of autonomy for the Kurds. Um, it also includes references to effectively no foreign entities or elements being allowed inside Syria, that it being a sovereign, it being a sovereign country. So uh, it seems that Russia's vision for Syria is one where, not necessarily that Assad stays, but simply that Syria, as in terms of the country that it is today, um, and its historic allegiance or alliance, let's say, with Russia and with you know being an independent country in the Middle East is what they want to maintain, what they want to see. And that does not necessarily, probably explicitly, does not include significant Iranian influence in Syria, which the Iranians, of course, would like to have, right? The Iranians want to have as much influence in Syria as possible. They'd like to have a little pathway over the Mediterranean and stuff. And, of course, Hezbollah would like to have quite a lot of influence in Syria, might want Syria to have a lot of influence in uh, Lebanon, and vice versa, but uh, what is this Iranian influence thing they, they all talk about? Is it like Iran wants to conquer and claim Syrian territory and Lebanon for itself? Obviously so, not. That's maybe, ridiculous. Maybe, maybe not. 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 It wants to have puppets, not explicitly puppets but, in those two countries, but it wants to have influence. <clears throat> and certainly, I think the point is that Russia does not want, does not think it's a good idea that Iran has that kind of an influence in Syria. So that at least should go some way to explaining why Russia and Putin aren't too worried about Israel saber-rattling over the Iranian presence in Syria uh, and, and even launching the odd attack on, on, on Iranian bases in Syria. It's also to send a message to the Syrians, you know, 
um, because there's, you know, after seven years of war and stuff and people in Syria realizing, uh, politicians in Syria realizing that uh, the Iranians have helped them a lot to deal with the, the jihadis that have overrun, the Western-backed jihadis that have overrun Syria the past seven years. Uh, there's a lot of people, maybe a lot of <clears throat> feeling in, in Syria amongst the political class and amongst some of the population that Iran should have a place, you know. So it's about convincing, not only convincing Iran that it's not going to have the run of Syria, free free reign or free uh, the free run of Syria, and also that the Syrians need to kind of like um, realize that they can't just uh, allow the Iranians to run run all over the place either, you know, um, because it's not good for the region. Basically, you know, it's not good for uh, the Russians want to see strong, independent nation states uh, cooperating uh, in in the Middle East, and that. You know they can't avoid including Israel in so, that in that equation, yeah. in that future equation. The the utopian vision would be a Middle East that includes Israel and all the countries that exist there today, and all of them being relatively you know strong and independent as possible, uh, and cooperating with each other to the greatest extent possible. That's the Russian plan. So you can't piss anybody off. You right. can't you can't extreme, you can't target one country as the bad guy and piss them off. Especially in the case of Israel, which has a very strong military. You know, and Israel is a bit of a wild card in the sense that and you, I mean you don't necessarily know streak that's yeah. a mile wide. Yeah, you don't know if they wouldn't go bonkers. You know, and and that's the thing. It, I think the US has uh, Russia has expended a lot of resources over the past two or three years uh, in, in in consolidating its position and its 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 ability to have this role of a kind of mediator in the region in general. It's put a lot of resources in, a lot, a lot of Russians have died as a result. It's put a lot of money and a lot of effort into doing that. And it knows that a major conflict between Iran and Israel or Iran and Syria would ruin all that. Mm-hmm. It would bring it to a choice where it has to go, well, are we sending in 100,000 troops? Right. Well, they, well, they wouldn't. They're not, they're not going to do that. Right. They want to do it the smart way, which is that limited, limited well, I mean, uh, to, damage. To, uh, to save what they've already invested, that's the kind of thing you'd have to do. Right. Should it... Right, Get but, to the next level. but that would be that would be that would be too much. That would be a uh, too much of an investment. That would be too costly. Basically, yeah. they've done a lot with very little uh, cost, and they want to preserve that. And okay. the only way you can preserve that is, is having good uh, a good relationship with Israel. You can't piss Israel off. Basically, you have to. I think you, you know. I think your explanation I mean, there. You know just, I think you just explained the clash between a Russian view and an, an assumption that a lot in the left and the independent media right. would have, which is that this, everyone hates Israel, and they they don't say it because no one wants to say it, but they, do, they want Israel gone. They maybe right. want a Palestine. Those Israelis who are there, they can stay, but mm-hmm. you've got to live in a Palestine. Right. And it's all got to be, the whole order of that specific country has to be changed. Right. But that's not going to happen because the no. fact is already on the ground. Right. You're talking about a revolutionary upheaval like that would just, that would cause a World War Three. Right type situation because yeah. it's an existential thing for right. Israelis. It's not. It's not ideal. It doesn't make people feel good, kind of thing that they have to. But it never does, you know. In conflict, we're talking really here. What you're really talking about here is uh, conflict resolution, international conflict resolution. And there's above all else, right? And there's. I mean, there are people. Probably there are there are people who have. Uh, Usually, they're diplomats from different countries or members of UN uh, organi- uh, organizations or something that have gone into various different countries that have had long-term historical conflicts, and they go in and they try to uh, start a reconciliation program. And when there's a lot of pain and hurt and dead people from families and all kind of, kind of stuff on, on both sides, it's very difficult to get those people to uh, to talk 
to each other, to live with each other. Um, it's a long process. And, and somebody has to go in, and, and the main point in terms of that, uh, the, the goal of that mediator going in is to, you can't highlight or yeah. sideline or marginalize one group, even if it's true, that they are the bad one. You cannot actually treat them worse than anybody else because you're not going to get the, re- the, the reconciliation uh, and, and towards a positive, more stable future that right. you want to achieve. So, so it's, 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 it's unsavory and it's distasteful to have to do that. Especially if you've got some, you know, if you've got a moral compass pointing in the right direction, but you have to deal, you have to deal with that. You simply, well, I mean, you end up having to deal with murderers and have them sit down at a table with their victims, or have two murderers sit down together and and try and find ways for them to. Uh, it's you know, it's to distaste, get on. It's distasteful, but you're doing it actually for a higher order goal, right. which is to reduce the war. Right. First and foremost, let's just, right. or at least hold it where it is, mm-hmm. and then work to see if we can get it down, 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 down. So it's actually the highest goal, as distasteful as it all can be, you know, meeting Netanyahu and so on. Um, yeah. The point is that Russia doesn't need, because this is Russia's backyard, and Russia has strong ties. I mean, people should not underestimate, and it can't, well, it can't be overemphasized, the geography of the situation, of, of the geopolitical situation right now, uh, in the sense that. You know, the countries in the region all have a lot in common. Well, they have one really big thing in common, which is that they all share a relatively small landmass together. So there's all sorts of natural things that would come as a result of that if, if, if there was peace or a peaceful relations. Relations would be all sorts of trade and trade and economic uh, links. Basically make, for, make you friends with people once you're doing business with them, once you're, you're in a mutually beneficial uh, business uh, uh, agreement or association, you're, you're you're more or less friends. You're not going to go to war with them usually, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same that is, that that applies to those countries in the Middle East, all of them, and it also applies to Russia because it's more or less Russia's backyard. Um, the problem is that so they don't need Russia doesn't need to have lots of military bases in these countries. It doesn't need to hold these countries. It just needs peace to break out, and then Russia and everybody else benefits. That's not the same for that's not true for America. America, as you may have noticed, America needs to hold countries or hold uh, parts of the world or parts of countries uh, through through military means. They need to have military bases in those countries, and from those military bases, then they can they can engage in all sorts of any as necessary any kind of provocations or stir things up or you know fund kind of rebel armies and all that kind of stuff. You know, because uh, <laughs> for, to a large extent, because of America's geographic position in the world and where it actually wants to. The areas that it wants to control, which are thousands of miles away, um, it's ultimately fighting against a kind of. In many cases, it finds itself fighting against uh, a natural, cohesive order among the countries in that region, because they would all get together, and it'd be easier for them to trade with each other than with America. So, how does America get them to trade with with America, which is five thousand miles away? Well, uh, you sow conflict, and you pit one against the other, and all that kind of stuff. It's it's, it's more, unfortunate. It's, it's more like a mafia racket. Right, yeah. You need to go into other neighborhoods and, and control them from afar, but I mean, those neighborhoods would work, work, work it out themselves eventually uh, yeah. if, if there wasn't that foreign interference, you know, and it all stems from from the, from the America's designs on the world, effectively, that go way back, you know, and before that, maybe the British Empire or whatever. Uh, it, it stems from their designs on controlling as much of the world as possible, and, you know, one one country in one geographic area in the world cannot control the rest of the world indefinitely 
without doing it by force in some way, or force, manipulation, dirty tricks, Deception. whatever, uh, or seeding conflict or showing conflict. It doesn't happen, you know, because there is a natural order where countries in the same geographic area do business with each other and learn to get on with each other. I mean, sure, they have, they'll have wars or fights or stuff, you know, at different times or different periods, but eventually they, especially in the modern age, right, uh, where there's more... Um, or potential to do more damage. There's a lot of incentives to not fight with your neighbours and a lot of incentives, obviously economic incentives, to do business with them. Um, yeah. So there is an element of Russia balancing Israel against Iran here. Trying to, yeah. But maybe the difference, the difference perhaps, is that it's not doing so to gain uh, an advantage for one of them, or for itself, through yeah. one of them. No, kind of for everybody. For everyone. But it's a really, it's a, it's a tall order, in my estimation, because um, you know Israel, the Israelis are kind of, at least if you listen to them, they're pathologically the political class, and some of the, many, much of the population, or a lot of the population, are uh, pathologically paranoid. I mean, they've had the whole, you know, the Holocaust thing, and um, <clears throat> the the guys or the non-Jews or whatever are out to get us and at any moment it could happen again. Um, that doesn't really make for a a stable <laughs> kind of uh, cooperative, let's say, uh, friendly uh, approach to those people who you suspect of potentially at any minute seeking your destruction. Now, I mean, that's what they say. Do they really believe that? I don't know. I, I think you can't say that kind of thing uh, the number of times that the Israelis have said it throughout over the course of decades without it becoming a part of your mentality in some way or other, even if it's just you understand that it's a bit of a ruse in a certain sense. Uh, and obviously it affects the population because you have to propagandize the population to believe to believe that, you know, to justify your actions that, you know, we need to defend ourselves, you know, remember Nazis and Hitler and Holocaust, it could happen again, you know, and you create, you kind of pathologize yourself in a certain sense, you know. So uh, Israel's a big problem in that respect. And Israel obviously has, uh, <clears throat> for a long time, has had a lot of control and still does have a lot of control in in the US. Um, I mean, I don't think we need to go in. We should go into all the ways in which uh, Israel has worked. It's the Israelis and the Israeli lobby in the US have worked their magic and stuff. I mean, it's at least one part kind of, you know, coercion and, you know, arm twisting and kind of some subtle forms of manipulation. And the other part would be the natural, I suppose kind of Judeo-Christian ideological bias alignment, that, alignment yeah. or align, uh, that, that, that Americans would have with, with with Israel and the concept of Israel being, you know. The, Especially the, Americans. The, the missionary right. thing is really strong. Right. Manifest destiny. All right. That. So there's a lot of people in America. Probably the problem is that there's a lot of people in America who are fully behind the Israeli narrative of Iran is evil. Iran is out to get us and we need to destroy Iran. So that's why... You, uh, you have a lot of love support in the U.S. for um, get Iran, attack Iran, keep Iran back, push push Iran back, don't let them spread any influence. Trump himself has uh, found common cause with the Israelis, with that Israeli narrative of Iran as evil, but not so much from an ideological perspective because, as far as I can tell, uh, Trump isn't ideologically driven like the kind of deep state actors or the 
American accept American exceptionalists who believe they should rule the world and stuff. Uh, Trump is more like a businessman basically, and when he talks about Iran being a horrible, very bad, terrible deal, he just means it from a business perspective. And his backing out of the Iran deal is his plan to um, to secure a better deal, basically to to fulfil or to follow up on his campaign promises of finding ways to uh, make America great again, uh, to you know increase jobs, increase income, get more money, show me the money, basically. And he hopes that he can do that, and there's a possibility that he'll be able to do that. And that's something that's going to be talk about. It's about the details of of the Iran deal. Uh, how what's going to happen in terms of you know uh, the US backing out of it and trying to impose sanctions on Iran? Just before it though, there's one more thing I want to say about the attack, the supposed <clears throat> Iranian attack first, and then the response by Israel. Um, I think this is another reason why what we saw last week, just as we saw a month before with the, the Fucus airstrikes were basically the upper limit of what they can do. Right. And why perhaps Putin slash Russia would let it slide, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Because well, you know, in the Israeli account, we were attacked first by 20 rockets fired into the Golden Heights. However, they didn't do anything. Four of the rockets were intercepted by Israel's Iron Dome. Right. Remember that? Um, and the rest just exploded on Syrian territory. Yeah. However, because of crappy Iranian rockets, right? Because of crap, Lebanese media has a very different story. It says that this retaliation, not provocation, hit at least ten targets, so they were half successful. Half of the twenty did hit something, mm-hmm. so they both had a half and half hit right. success rate. So they're actually quite evenly matched, right. and they they listed very specific sites in Le- in Le- in the Golan Heights that were hit, and then said, well. And they, the, the report I read just simply cited that in the past, it's well known that Israel has an absolute lock iron key over what the media reports. Mm-hmm. Think, Absolutely. And there's total silence whenever, right. whenever they take they it. A, so they reported a totally different version of events as to what Israel happened. Israel has a branch of the military, which is media liaison, basically, and they tell the media what to print, basically, from a, from a military perspective. Go ahead. Well, the Lebanese TV was, was telling... Lebanese viewers, Al Mayadeen, that 10 Israeli targets were hit, and they included um, smaller facilities like border stations, but right. also a military center for electronic jamming, yeah. um, a spy center for wireless and wired networks, mm-hmm. a combat heliport was wiped out, um, the headquarters of the Regional Military Command of Brigade 810. The command center of another military battalion at a place called Herman, mm-hmm. and so on, um, and that there were very likely yeah. casualties. But that was completely like it's a militarized zone within a country that's already heavily militarized. So they just simply put a mute on the hits that they took and, right. and the likely casualties. Right. So well, what I was and that was in response. Was, that was in response to them being attacked or the Syrians. So it was just basically Iran wasn't involved in that at no, all. It that, was Syrian that's, Israel. That's something to remember. Yeah, exactly. Is that you know you, you, the media portrayed this as you know Israel attacks Iran attacks Israel Israel attacks back and it's all Iran Iran. But actually, that's Iran wasn't involved in this at all. Basically, it was the Israelis launched attacks on Syrian anti-aircraft uh, or, or air, air defense systems, and the Syrians responded by firing at the. At these locations in the, in the occupied Golan Heights. I can draw yeah. another conclusion from this. You remember that the Israeli government warned people in the Golan Heights the day before. Right. 
to be prepared and to go into shelters. Mm. Uh, and that there's a, a twist in that, which is the, the implied thing was, oh, those people out there, Iranian Syrians, yeah. whoever, will, it, will attack civilian Are targets. Are planning to attack us. Well, of course they didn't. They were specifically hitting military targets. But this nevertheless tells us that the Israelis had a realistic assessment of what the Syrian slash Hezbollah, I presume they were involved in this too, um, can and cannot do to them after they give them a surprise attack. Yeah. So the surprise attack provoked a retaliation mm. that was almost equal in measure. Mm. Maybe. At, at least in terms of its uh, success rate. Yeah. If that uh, well, 10 out of 20 targets... Well, there's a, difference, there's a difference between uh, the Israelis attacking uh, Syrian air defences well inside Syria and the Syrians responding by shooting a few stations on the border of the Golan Heights, okay. which is occupied okay. territory, Syria. which actually belongs to Syria. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, it's not like they shot that, fired some fired some bases outside Tel Aviv, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but the interesting thing about this is that, just to look at the way Russia set it up, basically, and Russia's plan, its broad, kind of long-standing, I suppose, at this point, plan for the Middle East, uh, for what it's trying to do in the Middle East, it gave S-300 systems to Iran. Uh, a few years ago, a couple of years ago, delivered them. And that was, and they, they, when they do that, they know that, I mean, the point of them doing that is to stop a major uh, aerial bombardment of the country, like a, a Shock decapitation off. regime change kind of thing, you know. Whereas <clears throat> they haven't given the S300 to Syria. This is the other thing people in the alt, alt media are screaming about is why don't you give them S300? Russia's being. You know, it's a moral duty to give... Russia is allied with Israel, yeah. therefore. Well, it's allied with Syria. Right, but the, the claim is that covertly it's also allied with Syria because... Right, it, it must be allied with Syria. Well, it, it's, not, it's not against anybody is the point. It can't be against anybody in that region because of the potential for major conflict and destruction of everything Russia has been working for. And people don't seem to be able to or willing to accept that fact and to see the nuance and the complexities of it and, and how difficult it is. Uh, but the point is they give S-300s to Iran and S-300s are designed to very effectively shoot down um, uh, jets, military planes, any kind, of, any kind of military planes and do it very effectively. I.e., um, if Russia had given the S-300 to Syria, Syria could have shot down most of those planes that flew into or even came close to Syria. But uh, they've said recently they made it pretty clear, the Russians have made it pretty clear that the Syrians are not getting the S-300 and that they have everything they need. What does that mean? That means that the Syrians have everything they need for their defense. Defense against uh, the kind of rocket attacks or Tomahawk cruise missile attacks that the US and its allies would perpetrate against Syria and also against Israel's periodic little forays. They can defend themselves fairly well. But they're not... They, that what, what the Russians are saying is that Syria does not need the capability to shoot down foreign planes, uh, i.e. American planes or Israeli planes. It should not do that because that would be a prelude to them being destroyed. So what Russia is saying is I'm not, we're not giving Syria the capability to be the architect of its own destruction and the destruction of everything that Russia has worked for in Syria by shooting down, by having the capability to shoot down Ameri planes. American or Israeli planes. Before they even leave Israel. Right. They're not giving them that capability. They don't need it. All they need to do is be able to defend themselves against these kind of rocket attacks and the process will continue. There is a process going on, ongoing behind that that Russia is kind of spearheading, and it's a it's a natural order, like a, like I've been saying, um, making its 
making itself felt effectively you know uh, the more you stabilize the middle east and further across into into eurasia and the more you knit that continent together uh the more russia's kind of grand plan and china's grand plan is achieved yeah and that's obviously the one thing that definitely scares the american exceptionalists the one who think america should rule the world uh because it spells the end of their hegemony and it also freaks out israel because of specifically because of the Middle East, not the broader Eurasian integration, but the Middle East, the, a, a sea change in the, in the power structures of the Middle East freaks out Israel because Israel's afraid that it will lose out big time in that respect as well. And Russia is having to keep the Israelis, um, you know, calm, let's say, about that, but, or do its best to keep the Israelis calm and to give them assurances. And it's a big assurance. I mean, the fact that Netanyahu was at the Moscow... Uh, Victory Day, Day, Parade, Day Parade is is very significant, you know. It shows that Netanyahu is happy with with what Russia is doing, that it feels confident. You know, he, he's willing to publicly <clears throat> show uh, that effectively that Israel uh, has confidence in Syrian um, mediation in the Middle East. Uh, that it's, you know, it's a hat tip to Russia as, you know, we respect you, basically. Um, and that obviously means that Russia has done the right things and said the right things to make Israel feel that way. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's the best Russia can do at this point. You know? There was a headline in Harris today saying that Netanyahu last week, in having Trump re- renege on the Iran deal on the Tuesday, mm-hmm. and then on the Wednesday, be the guest of honor for, for, guest of honor for Putin, he had scored the royal flush. Right. And uh, th- they can take that too far, you know, mm-hmm. the wishful thinking that, oh, and that would, that would be exactly what the conspiracy theory angle is, well, you see, well, Israel controls both. Right. Jesus, that's how powerful it is. But, of course, the, there's a question, we'll, we'll get to it in a minute, about Trump's thinking on all of this. We, we've given a fair bash to what Putin's situation is, what, all the things he has to deal with. Now we'll think about maybe what, what Trump has to deal with. I'll just say, though, before we switch a bit, that um, there, even though the mainstream media just you know, accepted the Israeli version of events last week. Iran attacked us, we at, we defended ourselves. They still produced analyses of the situation that were taking stock of reality. Um, but I was surprised. Um, so the Guardian's Middle Eastern correspondent, Martin Chirlov, um, the latest Israeli barrage has galvanized the belief that the two foes, Israel and Iran, are on a collision course. Um, blah, blah, blah. It does not, however, mark a new phase in the highly dangerous standoff. And here's a reality check. Iran's calculation, he writes, is that it just needs to absorb the damage Israeli jets are causing. Now, that's basically, it just switch in Syria there for Iran. Basically. Mm-hmm. Syria can just absorb this, basically. Mm-hmm. Iranian leaders have invested many lives and enormous amounts of money consolidating a presence in the ruins of Syria and a large-scale retaliation would jeopardize gains that could soon change the balance of power in the region. Right. So, going with the mainstream narrative of Israel versus Iran, World War III, Iran doesn't have to do anything. Right. And it didn't. Its response last week was a few words about, oh, let's ease tensions. Okay, yeah, some of the more radical people, they took to parliament and they burned the American, American flag, flag, yada, yada, yada. You know, but the official you know, statement was, chill, everyone, just chill. Right. Yeah. Because they're operating from a position of strength. Yeah. You notice they didn't burn the Israeli flag Well, in parliament. I think they burned the Trump flag and uh, then the American flag after the announcement of the Iran deal. And that right. was before the airstrikes. But. Right, yeah. 
Um, even, uh, here's another thing, even Lieberman, Israel's mad dog Lieberman, right? Commenting, I think this is before the airstrikes, but he's commenting on the results of the elections in Lebanon, mm-hmm. which was a majority success for the first time ever for Hezbollah. Mm-hmm. He, quote from him, Hezbollah has in practice completed its takeover of Lebanon. He, of course, you know, is horrified by that mm-hmm. prospect, but it means it's now in complete control. It's not really, but it has majority control, not just of the Lebanese government, but also its army. From now on, he's putting the worst spin on this. From now on, a worse Le- uh, a Lebanese sniper is a Hezbollah stand-in and takes direct orders from Hezbollah and Nasrallah. It's not. It's still a, a coalition government, but still, he can, he finishes. This is the new reality. So they're they're seeing. I mean, they're seeing what's going on, and that's that's supposedly the malignant Iranian influence in right. one of the two countries, Syria and Lebanon, and of course the other one is Iraq, which also had elections this week. Lebanon now has a majority government with a popular will is aligned with the Iranian view of the Middle East. And this is the malignant Iranian influence that the Israelis and the Americans are harping on and on and on about. But it's come about organically, mm-hmm. democratically, as a result of the way they've been trying to reconfigure the Middle East for the last 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. They completely hoisted on their own petard. Yes, it's the new reality, and you created it, which is completely contrary to what you ever wanted to happen. Uh, (laughs) Well, his... I mean, about the Lebanese elections, it's kind of ridiculous. You know, I mean, uh, Lebanon has about 60%... 60% of the population of Lebanon is is Muslim. Um, About half of that are Shia. Mm, I suppose the other half are... The other half are Sunni. Um, Lebanon or uh, Hezbollah is a, is a Shia organization, but it basically uh, the reason it's so popular is because it has for a long time now has taken the lead on kind of social services in the country and provides a lot of uh, basic basic social services, you know, you know, doctors and ambulances and 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 um, like hospitals. It finances a lot of that stuff. It's taken over at the level where that, that actually benefits people that people really feel in their pockets type of thing and that's why they're so popular you know uh, but the bottom line is uh, it's um, and, and so, so a lot of the Sunni there isn't that kind of Shia Sunni divide there isn't that really that Shia Sunni divide traditionally in the Middle East anyway any kind of serious Shia Sunni uh, enmity um, it can be exacerbated or can be stoked at certain times but it doesn't historically it doesn't really exist you know Shia and Sunni traditionally kind of intermarried in many places in the Middle East so and in Lebanon, that's not an issue. I mean, the Sunni and the Shia together uh, support support Hezbollah, and they make up sixty percent of the population. So why wouldn't they be a majority in the country? Why wouldn't they, Why wouldn't Hezbollah have a controlling stake in the country when sixty percent of the population supports them? The same as Putin, you know. Why would Why, why should Putin, you know, why should, Why does Putin keep getting elected? Because majority of Russians support him. Maybe is that bad? Yeah. From a certain perspective, it's bad, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, on the, the thing about Trump is, like we're, I think we said already on, so Trump has this, there's this convergence or alignment between Trump's kind of like um, show me the money, businessman, uh, election um, manifesto or election promises, uh, him trying to fulfill those and stick with that, basically. Uh, there's an alignment between that and Israel, and that's why you're seeing. <clears throat> I mean, he's obviously, 
we I don't want to we can't really get into it too much, but obviously the Israel lobby and those that support Israel within the US are a force, a serious force to be reckoned with, and they have a lot of influence and have had have had a lot of influence going back many many decades over over US presidents. I mean the uh, there's just another article here I'll I'll throw up on the screen. Um, it's uh, from just from a guy uh, from a from a blog basically. But uh, he has all his sources cited and stuff, and it's he's making a case. The title is "Follow the Money: How Three Billionaires Paved the Way for Trump to Withdraw from the from the Iran Deal." And the three guys are Paul Singer, Bernard uh, Marcus, and Sheldon Adelson. Um, they're fairly, fairly well known. At least Adelson is fairly well known in the, in the U.S. has been for a long time. But those three are basically Israel firsters. They're full on. Uh, backers of Israel and have been for, for most of their lives. And those three uh, are together donated something like 40 or 50 million to the Trump campaign, more or less. Um, so Trump is under the influence of those kind of people, uh, as every every US president is to one extent or another. But the point here is, is that it's not just simply another US president doing the bidding of Israel, but rather that Trump sees that backing out of the Iran deal, which Israel obviously and these guys obviously, you know, anything that hurts Iran, uh, these guys think it's a, it's a good idea and that's, they, they would have seriously supported or encouraged Trump to, to back out of the Iran deal. But Trump himself had personal reasons based on his MAGA mandate to back out of the Iran deal and to try and renegotiate it. And this is the other aspect of it now is in terms of what's going to happen as a result of Trump backing out of the Iran deal. Um, but the European reaction is no thanks. It's well, it's unprecedented. I mean, some of the language they've been using is like the V word. Was I heard for the first time from the French foreign minister? Uh, well, he well, he asked a rhetorical question about are, are we going to be a vassal? Are we we're going to be a vassal who obeys America? Yeah, shock horror. What a what a what a thought! But ten years ago, you'd be like conspiracy theorists. That's the realm of you don't talk about those things. Yeah. When we were pointing out that Europe's a vassal of the United States, <laughs> yeah. and suddenly but, they suddenly they discovered what the concept of sovereignty or yeah yeah because they were dropped basically by Trump. And uh, I mean, it's not looking good. And I, and I see a lot of ways. If, obviously, Trump seems to be going ahead. But still, we have to wait and see because there's a kind of six month grace period between now and uh, there's two dates. Uh, we have to kind of like companies are being forced, will be forced in theory. Uh, there's August and then November. By November, basically, um, everybody in the world, technically, because America says so, pretty much every single person in the world, potentially all 8 billion of them, have to walk away from any dealings they are doing with Iran. Of course, it's not 8 billion people, but all the companies in the world, no matter where they are, Europe, everywhere, everybody has to stop buying and selling from Iran. Uh, or else. Or else what? Or else America will hurt you. Financially. Presumably not militarily. No, I don't think so militarily. <laughs> but they'll try and they'll hurt you. But that, for a lot of people, that's, you know, economic war is, is can be just as bad or can potentially be. Certainly, that's what Israel would like to see out of uh, America dr- dr- backing out of this Iran deal, i.e. and reimposing really punitive sanctions on Iran. They would like to see Iran you know, all but destroyed or turned into a kind of uh, a meek, uh, you know, backward kind of nation where it's basically, where it's basically um, 
contained economically, where it has to go cap in hand begging to people, you know, and, and therefore you have all, all the leverage you want over them. You basically contain it to its geographic borders, basically. Uh, and, and, and even then, it has to still ask you for permission to do things. That's what Israel wants to see with Iran uh, and the America, or the kind of American exceptionists as well, because, you know, Israel is afraid of Iran because if it spreads into the Middle East, it, it thinks that it would ultimately, you know, be the end of Israeli influence in the Middle East. And America, the deep state in America, sees Iran, expansion of Iran, but not just Iran, but the whole Eurasian project and Russia, etc., as spelling or portending the end of, of American influence, uh, kind of American hegemony, let's say, in the world. And that's another centre on the Middle East, because there's an order in the Middle East, you know, that largely centred around Saudi Arabia and Israel that has prevailed for the past 70 years. Uh, and that order is the American uh, world order, the American global order, and it has hinged on the, on the existence of Saudi Arabia and Israel and, of course, American military bases. But the, the influence that particularly Saudi Arabia and Israel has afforded America is, is what has maintained American hegemony, including the petrodollar and all that kind of stuff, has enabled and maintained American hegemony. So, I mean, it's not an overstatement to say that uh, this is a kind of existential crisis, at least from the point of view of people who think that their entire existence is justified or based on the idea that they sit atop the heap, sit on top of the heap. Um, and if we fall, even if we fall a few places, that's like an existential crisis. It's more or less like a death to us. Right. So the petrodollar must stand. Right. Bottom line, let's say, U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. Israel and isolating Iran, it's a bonus. And or it, they both have equal measure, whatever. It's all wrapped up. Not a bonus. It's, it's, it's central to maintaining the central. petrol dollar okay. is, to, is to keep Iran down. Okay. And keep the current order in the Middle East. So the French foreign minister this week, in response to this announcement, says to maintain European investments, already made in Iran and potential ones in the pipeline, no pun intended, we're looking at how to strengthen Europe's financial independence. He asked rhetorically, what can we do to give Europe more financial tools allowing it to be independent from the United States? One proposal is to set up a purely European finance house to oversee euro-denominated transactions, right. <clears throat> which is the end of the petrodollar, but you know, make a big hit to it. It's a hit to the dollar as 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 the currency for an international trade, and that's the means by which Trump and the American uh, what's the name of it? Uh, had it there somewhere. They have, they have, it's a little known uh, government agency, a financial intelligence agency in the U.S. called the Office of Foreign Assets Control. Uh, it's very powerful. Office of Foreign Assets Control. Uh, it's an enforcement agency of the U.S. Department uh, Treasury Department. And it administers and enforces economic and trade sanctions in support of U.S. national security and foreign policy objectives. Under presidential national emergency powers, the OFAC carries out its activities against foreign states as well as a variety of other organizations and individuals who are deemed to be a threat to U.S. national security. Uh, and their power, I mean, you're talking here about the power, we're talking here about the extent to which the U.S., the reason why the U.S. is the biggest economy in the world and the greatest power in the world, the only superpower in the world, is because it has infiltrated uh, many areas of the world in many different ways, militarily and economically. And now that ability, that infiltration, those, that network that they have established over many decades is what they are leveraging, what they plan to leverage and what they do leverage when they impose sanctions on other countries and their control over um, 
you know, the way economic or world trade is done through through the banking system that, that cash flows, that trade flows when you buy something from one country and you want to pay them, it has to go through a certain banking system and stuff. And they can cut that off and stop those payments actually happening. Uh, and they can also obviously sanction uh, in, in that way. That, that's how they sanction countries. So it's not just a matter of America saying or Trump saying, nobody's allowed to do business with Iran. And then European countries going, eh, I'm going to do it anyway. And American going, damn you. You're not meant to do that. Stop that. It doesn't sound like isolationism to me. That sounds like it's all mine. But the rhetoric from Europe is, well, well America's leaving us behind, so we have to take over the mantle of the, the world thing is, I, Trump can't, can't engage, he can't engage in true fiscal conservatism or isolationism because America's already so spread around the world. He's not about, and, he, and he recognizes that as an advantage. He wants to leverage that advantage for American, directly for American gain. You know, um, so it's isolationism, isolationism in the sense of not pulling away from the Obama and, and really before that many going back many years, the idea of America policing the world. Because when you talk about America policing the world, you really talk about America kind of funding the world in one way or another, throwing billions of dollars at countries as a means to control them. <clears throat> of course, the countries do get some benefits from that, but primarily it's for America to keep its hand in that country. Trump looks at the figures and, that and says ridiculously expensive. <clears throat> it's not good for the American economy. I'm going to stop doing that. But I'm not going to sacrifice the leverage that our empire or the structure of our empire affords me to do hardcore business and just get the money. You know, show me the money. Screw giving aid to countries. Let's do really good deals with countries so America profits. So American, you know, American business profit and there's more jobs and all that kind of stuff. Um, so he is thinking... Is, is he thinking with respect to the Iran deal, we didn't get any good investment projects out of this? Right. And everyone, especially Europe's getting a ton out of this. So I'm muturing it. Or is it more, is he actually also thinking geopolitically where that threatens the petrodollar system? So I'm going to keep it isolated. Right. Well, I'm not sure. Which, which, <clears throat> well, that's which, why he finds an alignment with, with Iran. Or finds an alignment with Israel right. in terms of serving Israel's objectives of keeping Iran down. He wants to go back to – so the first thing he's, going to, he's planning to do or he's going to do is impose these ridiculously punitive measures on Iran that could destroy the Iranian economy, literally, and then use that as leverage to say to Iran, okay, here's what you're going to do now. Here's what you have to do. Uh, and that suits Israel and that suits Trump. Because it basically keeps Iran under the thumb as a basically a, a subservient uh, to, to U.S. dictates, so it can't really do anything against Israel. It's gonna it's gonna have to curtail its influence in the Middle East and only do business uh, with preferential customers like Iran and he'll, or sorry, or with the U.S. and he'll throw some trombones to Europe or whoever, you know, uh, still likes them, still friendly with them, throw some to them. So he has this idea that he can control. He uh, can control Iran. Him and the Israelis can control Iran. One of them for Trump for economic reasons and Israel for geo, geo strategic reasons. And Trump also for geo geo strategic reasons, but only with economics as the end end result. You know what I mean? So my my point is here is that very clear that Trump is not ideologically driven. And I've said that before. He's not ideologically driven in the same way that the the you know the manifest destiny type people are. You know the nut jobs and the deep state and stuff. And they're, and it's not even that they think they want to own the world they kind of well they do want to own the world but in a 
in a fairly destructive kind of way, in a, in a, in a master-slave kind of way. You know, it's a pernicious uh, ideology they have. It's spun, obviously, as, you know, humanitarianism and keeping the world safe and stuff, but it's not. It's about keeping everybody else down. And uh, that costs a lot of money. And Trump wants to reconfigure that <clears throat> in a different way. Uh, he wants to still do a lot of business and all that kind of stuff and still exert America's influence, but he doesn't want to co- pay the money that's required to keep all of those countries uh, compliant, basically. Because, I mean, a, a country, you have to, I mean, you can't, America hasn't gone around the world. They have gone around the world periodically bombing countries and that, but most of what they've been doing is keeping countries uh, as, as compliant vassals through throwing money at them. Yeah, they're, they're paid uh, slaves, and they're, they're along paid, the lines of paid confessions of an economic hitman by John yeah. Perkins. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now and again they'll overthrow. Of course, they overthrow governments and that kind of stuff. But ultimately, when they overthrow a government and a new one comes in, then they're given lots of kind of uh, money and, and military stuff, and you know they're, they're helping the economies of those countries. They're helping those countries, you know. Of course, in a kind of capitalist way, but it's you know it's not so bad in that sense, you know. But in a way that controls the level of development and right. how they develop and right. who they co-develop with. Exactly. Um, so, do you think Trump then, are we going to see the, an evil streak here finally from him in the sense that he will actually carry through his intention and crush Iran economically? Well, he won't be able to uh, if, <clears throat> I mean, uh, he's not going to, I don't think he's going to be able to, he thinks he is, but he's not, I don't think he's going to be able because to. Because remember, he brought in John Bolton not too long ago, right. and John Bolton had just announced at a major conference in Paris with the group that calls itself the Iranian new regime in waiting, mm the new government waiting, mm. that you will all be in power come January 2019. I mean, mm. is there like a timetable? And this know, is yeah. all go, go, well, go, go, go. John Bolton's a nut job. Like he's like an evil Ned Flanders, you know, and um, highly ho, you know. He's highly ho, Iran. He's, um, he, he's, he's crazy. He's a crazy person, you know. Um, that doesn't, and he's dangerous because he's a crazy person. You know, he's not insane, but he's crazy in terms of his, uh, he's an ideologue really, yeah. Um, but he's not, they're not going to be able to do what they want to do with Iran ultimately, you know, because especially if, well, even if even if Europe were to fall in behind it, it would hurt the Iranian economy. But Iran can, you know, can, I, I don't think China, based on the noises coming out of China, China is not going to sign up to any kind of, uh, the imposition of any sanctions on, on Iran. Because China buys a lot of oil and, and, and gas and, and sells a lot of stuff to Iran. And it's not about to just dump those dump that trade uh, because America says so. Uh, obviously, Russia wouldn't either. And But the big thing here is the, is the breakaway of the EU, basically, and the EU cutting their ties with over this, cutting their ties with, with the US. Yeah. Uh, but that that's not the end of it. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that you know Trump's plan then will be defeated and will be kind of stillborn in a certain sense or dead in the water. It's uh, because there's still a lot of leverage for the US to hurt European companies are trying to apply that pressure because it's not just we tell them like I said before, it's not just a matter of saying Europe, European companies stop doing business with Iran and they just get to say no uh, and then carry on and nothing happens. If European companies and any other companies say no to America, then America has measures or means to uh, to to try and force those companies to, to stop doing business with Iran. Uh, one example is that there's a lot of there's so much, you know, we live in a globalized world and there's so much investment, particularly between, uh, in, in Anglo-America, let's say, and in, in between, you know, the EU and America, there's a lot of bilateral trade and there's a lot of investment, mutual investments in, in, in companies across the Atlantic. So, 
in order to force European companies, for example, it would depend on a case-by-case basis, but any investments that America has, and here I'm talking about government investments, and not just federal, at the federal level, but at the state level, because state legislators all decide, I mean, states have their own, uh, you know, collect their own taxes and have their own investments. They basically invest in the same way a country does, to a large extent, uh, in, in, in companies like an, an, like an ordinary person would you invest your money. Uh, like Florida or California, or any, any US state, basically, they all make decisions to invest <coughs> invest their money into companies in the same way you or I would. Um, so they can they have that leverage of pulling, and it's a lot of money, so they have that leverage of pulling that money out of companies that are violating Trump's order to not do business with Iran. So let's say, you know, um, Airbus or Siemens or any big kind of uh, European company uh, is decides to ignore Trump's demand that mm-hmm. they stop doing business with Iran, they keep doing business with Iran, then they have that kind of leverage where they basically get all those states together but decide individually just to pull their money out of those companies and hurt so and hurt those companies uh, economically. So it's not just a matter of saying, right, we just got to get around the US dollar and we'll set up a system where we can trade in euros directly no. with Iran because the US is all up in no, but that's European but, but systems that's not, and companies. But what I just said isn't only one way as well. It's, it's basically, it's, you've got to think, really think carefully about whether you're going to kick off that kind of a trade war because obviously those companies and, and European states are invested in American companies and European companies are invested in American companies. And if you pull your money out of my company, I'm pulling my money out of your company. And you do that at the national level where like, you know, the US, some US states who have invested in Siemens pull their money out of it and hurt Siemens the company and that's a German company. Then the German government will talk to another German company that has invested in the US and say, listen, why don't you think about pulling your money out of, the, out of, out of the, your investments in U.S. companies? And then everybody starts hurting, you know. Uh, this but, could but turn an epic. Yeah. It, it could epic yeah. auto-collapse well, of it the could, West. Well, it could actually, it could actually be kind of a domino that, that, that causes an economic crash. The, the, the much, the long-predicted collapse the big of the global economy. This could be something that sets that in motion. But Trump is obviously deadly serious. <clears throat> and the Europeans know they done. can't just... I mean, they, they kind of did metaphorically flip the bird at him this week. Der Spiegel had this editorial and a cover on their their weekly edition this week. Right. The middle finger with Trump's hair on it or something yeah, like that. And that's all well and good. And there were all these harsh words. We don't want to be a vassal. It's time for Europe to grow up. European leaders just rediscover sovereignty, like I said. It sounds great, but I mean... Are they really prepared to go to the wall here? Because Trump sounds serious. American slash Israeli I mean, mutual interests are deadly serious. Yeah, no. I'll leave it open uh, that Trump is doing the, engaging in his tra- it, transparent art of the deal is here. Is an art of the deal type You maneuver. have to wait and see for the next six months whether, I mean, because there's, there's waivers that can be given to companies where they get they don't have to stop doing business in Iran. They can keep doing business in Iran. You know the U.S. this this U.S. Office of Foreign Assets Control will hand out waivers to companies that apply for them and say, okay, you can keep doing business in Iran. Okay, you can keep doing business, in Iran. or you can keep doing this amount of business in Iran. That kind of thing. You know, so we'll have to see where that goes. You know, but I think this is Trump testing the waters. Like he does. You know, the art of the deal is you aim high, right? You say, I want, you know this much, and then you know you only want half that, you know. So, um, the thing is, the European Union does not have, and not just the EU, but the establishment, establishments in a lot of Western European countries especially are on weak ground. They're not in a position for a fight. Now, 
one thing I got from this week is that there's been a lot of, I could see how potentially an attack like this from the outside could rally Europe together in a way that hasn't been seen yet. At the same time, though, the foundations are so weak mm-hmm. of a European identity. I could see them trying to stitch it, sort of stitch it together. So We throw Brexit in the middle of that. Right. Uh, the potential I mean, for Brexit. Well, big question is, is Brexit going to happen? Do they have an intention of doing it? Are they going to pull the rug on Brexit? And then it's just going to go back the way it was before with the with the UK as a full, full member of the EU. And it all will have just been a big farce that everybody should be rightly very, very annoyed about because you've just wasted our time over two years. You know, If that happens, then, well, whatever, that's, that's of no significance other than just the time wasted. Uh, but if the US leaves, or the UK leaves the European Union, then they're in a, in a position where they have to, they're in an economically vulnerable position, and they increasingly, I mean, in terms of people who are looking at what we would, what they would do in the in the situation with, with Brexit, they're going to have to be doing spot spot deals or spot um, trade agreements with countries in different places. Obviously, America being one, but they're going to have to look much further east, you know, uh, to China and all that kind of stuff, you know. So. Yeah, it's all coming apart at the seams, basically. And Brexit is fun. it's funny that just the Brexit's right there in the middle of it, you know, in terms of that breaking of the... Because Brexit makes it difficult for... Uh, Brexit is actually probably one of the main reasons that, apart from Trump, but Brexit is one of the main reasons that the UK aligned itself in rejecting, uh, in, in saying that they would stay in the Iran deal. And, and siding with Iran and, and Germany because they, in another timeline, mm-hmm. they could have fully supported Trump uh, in, 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 in reimposing those sanctions, you know. Uh, but they haven't, you know. They're basically they're they've been muted, you know. It was France and Germany who were very loud about saying we we're going to stay with the deal, and it's kind of like the UK was behind behind looking over the shoulder of Germany and France, going, yeah. And uh, us too, we're going to stand it too because well, issued, because you need the business basically. They issued a joint statement. The, right. two, the three right. M's, the M&M's, right. as uh, yeah, right. Polly Boyd calls M's, them. Yeah. Yeah. Merkel and Macron may immediately put out a joint statement right. to the fact that uh, we're not leaving. Yeah. So we're going to carry on. Yeah. It's um, fighting words, but we'll see. Absolutely. And, you know... There, there was some symbolism, I thought, in where M- M- Macron and Merkel um, gave a lot of their statements this week. They were meeting in Aachen, right. where Merkel was awarding... Macron with the International Charlemagne Prize. Don't even ask me what it's for. Anyway, he was he was awarded. Maybe he was awarded with it for, sure for getting elected and saving Europe or something. You sure it wasn't the International Charlatan Prize? <laughs> Charlie, Charlie Man- Charlatan Mangi Char- Charlemagne is, of course, a quasi-mythological founding leader French of the Holy Roman Empire. Right. Uh, Aachen, et la chapelle in French, is the seat of the old Holy Roman Empire, where emperors for 500 years in the medieval times were coronated. Right. And that's the exact same, the coronation hall right. of the Aachen Town Hall, right, this, which is the founding place. It's the actual, it's the origin point of both countries we today right. call Germany and France. It was right. a Frankish empire. Because it, they were one for so long. And it harkens back to the Holy Roman Empire, right? Where, where the center of the world was Europe. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you can imagine that when they... Merkel they, can do symbolism, even well, if well, she yeah. doesn't do pageantry too well. well. Yeah. But it also it also speaks to possibly the 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 the, the impact or the, the seriousness of of this situation uh, for the European for your the EU the European leaders, uh, you know, because when they would when they would add that little extra bit of detail, if you know what I mean, of, of having their meeting, 
in the previous seat of the Holy Roman Empire when they're talking about maybe the EU we'll show should take, you. maybe the EU should take over America's role in the world. Right. Uh, yeah, that suggests something pretty serious. But yeah, I mean, it's a whole globalization. America is the victim, in a certain sense, a victim of its own of the success or its own success, or at least its uh, its own vision of the world in terms of you know globalization and America spreading itself around the world and spreading Coca Cola and all the wonderful technology and stuff all around the world. You know, uh, and it didn't really do that in any kind of a benevolent way, but you know that's is is it's one result of American influence on the world because America has a big influence in the world. You know, American culture and everything has a massive influence in the world. People liked it for a long time. Right. You know, they looked to it. And globalization and the development of technology and stuff has just made it very difficult now for. Uh, and this is why I keep saying that they're fighting against reality because, you know, I mean, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, a lot of big countries in the world, Russia, China, were fairly, you know, were kind of backwaters or, or backward. They weren't certainly global powers that could exert their, their influence in the way they can today. So in a very short period of time, because of that kind of exponential increase in, in the spread and the development of technology, you know, and, and, or the development of technology and the spread of it around the world, means that, you know, America, just the idea that one country like in, in days of old British Empire or, or America, could rule the world with that kind of heavy hand, just, it, 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 it's not possible anymore. It's simply not possible anymore, you know, as other countries rise up. America isn't a big country as far as, you know, in the top, in the list of big, powerful countries in the world, you know, by by the standard or by the the the, the meaningful or rational um, uh, measures of power, you know, I mean, America, what, 350 million people? Well, China's got 1.5 billion. You know, size, India's Russia's... got 1.2 billion. Yeah. You know, I mean, in terms of human resources and, and, and power, once you just inject technology into that, well, then it really comes down to, if you have an equalization of techn- access to technology, it comes down to natural resources and population. And that, whatever country has the, you know, has the most of both of those, they are the ones who lead the world, it's, right? Uh, they are the most powerful and most industrious and most most wealthy country. The natural the democratic order, right? But that's what America is fighting against, and that's why they're going to lose, because they're not fighting against nation states anymore. It's not about Iran. I mean, they can project onto one country. Oh, that evil Iran is trying to take over. No, it's actually a natural developmental process. It's kind of like a bully in a schoolyard getting angry and blaming the kid. One of the kids, or the kids who used to be small on him, who hit puberty, you know, he hit puberty earlier, and he got a hairy chest and big arms and was able to dominate the other kids. The other kids just took a couple of years to start, and they started growing muscles and stuff and got taller, and now they're the same size as him and the same muscles as him, and he's blaming them for conspiring to grow as big as him for nefarious purposes. Imagine the mindset that, that thinks that. That's, that's what America thinks. That's what these deep state actors are. That's what they actually are blaming these other countries for for naturally growing up. And how dare you? This is a nefarious conspiracy to take down America. No, it's a effing natural order, you bunch of... Jesus Christ. And it just blows my mind that these people are... They're freaking yeah. insane. And they're going to lose because they're fighting against reality. It's Forget about you know, fighting against Russia or China or Iran. It's not. They're fighting against a natural order, a reality that... Is no one's fault. No one conspired to do it. People, it's just happening as natural as 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 natural as evolution. What are you gonna? How are you gonna? Well, there's one way you can actually defeat that, and America is well versed in it. You bomb it back to the Stone Age. You blow it up. You kill it. That's how you. That's how you stop that from happening. So the the, the strategy to deal with that for everyone else 
is to simply acquire the means for the US not to have that outlet. It, it cannot do that because there's a corresponding matching of a right. technological right. military te- technology on the other side. Right. And those, so it can no longer do it. And then Those we, countries that are naturally coming up, they don't need aggressive. No. They're accused of, of, of acquiring aggressive means of, of, of potentially attacking Americans. No, they don't want that. Like you just said, all they have to do is acquire the means to defend themselves so that they can allow the natural developmental process to continue. That, and, and you see very, very clearly that that's what Russia understands and that's what China understands. Yeah, China... And, and even Iran understands that now, you know, that even in the case of the Middle East, it simply doesn't have, to, doesn't have to attack Israel, it doesn't have to blow up Israel. It simply needs, especially under the, under the auspices of, of kind of Russian mediation, they, and, and Syria can just sit there and they can absorb these, la- these blows, these lashing out, yeah. this lashing out from, from Israel and, 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 the, and the US against them. And just make sure that they don't have the ability to stop you from progressing as yeah. you actually would. When I was looking back at who has and has not either the S-300 or S-400 or equivalent, um, Iran, you mentioned, most recently acquired the systems. We know S-300. Turkey is trying to buy the systems. So Turkey is getting it, yeah. Is getting it. China has, India has. Right. All these countries. And when you think but about see, it, it's, it's like a canopy of prevention against shock and awe yeah. spread over the world yeah, and that space into which the US can do that is shrinking and it, yeah. it makes the paranoiacs go completely yeah. insane I have no outlet to right. bomb people anymore right. what am I going to do yeah I mean the fact that they give it to Turkey and give it to that Russia gave the S-300 to Turkey or S-400 is it 300 400 S-300 maybe to Turkey and to Iran is, is, is was calculated you know and it was two years ago they gave it to Iran and that was calculated because Russia understood that you know these two countries in particular, Iran and Turkey, because of the, because of their positions, well, Iran's resources and its size, and then Turkey being this kind of like you know linchpin between the Middle East and and Europe, those two countries, if they're if if they speak the same language, which they are speaking more or less the same language as us, have the same kind of vision as us, then they need the ability to not be uh, bombed back yeah. to the Stone Age. And that's all. And, and Russia, just given to him. Russia was going to give it to Iran 10, 15 years ago. Right. But our Western partners asked us not to. Asked us not to. Right. Then they go through the Iran deal, 12 years of negotiation. It's signed, yeah. boom, sale of right. S-300s to right. Iran. Right. And the reason, I mean, you have to understand as well, uh, Russia's perspective, of, uh, perspective towards Iran is that Russia doesn't want Iran to have nukes either, nuclear weapons either, you know? I mean, whether or not that's a big ruse, because, of course, the, the mullahs and the, the clerics in, in Iran have said that they don't want nukes either. Um, they they, they tried to create well, a, well, they a nuke-free against, Middle East. They said it's against their religion, Iran, that, that you know, it goes against their religion. And whether or not, I mean, whether or not believe that, you believe that is, is, is another question, because, of course, having nuclear weapons totally changes the game in the sense of, you know, the, the, the presence that you have in the... The, your ability to 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 assert your your rights changes a lot, you know. But um, I've read quite a few reports that they were already seeking on the market prior to ceasing all activity in 2003. They'd already been on the market for um, trigger detonators and all sorts mm. of stuff, like the final layers of stuff that right. you need just to make the bomb. You've already got right. the, the high yield uranium and stuff. Right. So they probably do. They probably already have one, yeah. 
Um, they, they do want, they would like to, they would be allowed to, but but in the right conditions, they'd be happy not to. You know, they're not. It's not. It's not a sticking point, if you know what I mean. As long as other conditions are right, you know. And nobody, a lot of countries don't have nukes, and they do very well. You know, they don't need to have nukes to to prosper. You know. Um, yeah, but you know, we'll have to wait and see what basically what way the the sanctions business goes. I mean, I just put up another another headline here on the screen. Um, Pay to have a look at it. I don't really need to comment on it, I suppose. Uh, China's new train line to Iran sends message to Trump. We'll keep trading anyway. So basically, China is, uh, is I think, has built, is inaugurated, or is being inaugurated very soon, a new train line from Iran, to, from China to Iran, mm-hmm. direct. And it's for carrying, primarily for Freight. carrying ca- cargo. It's for carrying cargo. And it's like, what are you going to do, bomb it? <laughs> You know, of course, like I, like we said earlier on, there are other ways that uh, the U.S. has to to punish countries uh, that continue to trade, but like that is a double-edged sword because, it, like we said, it kicks off a trade war. And is America able to survive such a trade war? You know, and ultimately, Trump flip-flops so much, and that's based on his order the deal thing, where he'll you know bluff and bluster and come out with a big, uh, you know, his high demand basically is throw you off guard, throw you off guard, and then you see that he, people accuse him of flip-flopping back and down from things and all that kind of stuff. But that's the way he operates. It's in his silly book that he wrote, that he wrote, you know, the order of the deal. That's what he does. I mean, it's like, why, why is anybody surprised that he does that? And that because part of that whole, part of that his his fairly basic politi- uh, business philosophy is so you go in high, knowing that you'll accept less. And if that's his, if that's the way he's going to or has been, uh, um, you know, managing his his presidency and managing you know a lot of his if that informs a lot of his decisions and stuff. It's always going to appear as he either flip flops or backs down and stuff. So uh, and also you get it, he gets accused of of exaggerating and bluffing and bluster, but that's. Freaking! That's that's what he that's what he says. That's how he runs his business empire, supposedly. You know what I mean? I mean, it's very simplistic, but anyway, um, yeah, it's no surprise really. So we'll have to wait and see what happens. Maybe he'll back down on a lot of the. There'll be lots of waivers handed out. He'll back down on the on the sanction on the sanctions or punishing European countries and stuff. But I think already, even if he does, he's made it pretty clear that things are changing. He's no longer going to. America's no longer, at least under under Trump, no, America's no longer going to be financing many of the things that it has been financing around the world, and that that's bad enough for for the Europeans. That's it's enough to instill in the Europeans a sense that we need to, you know, straighten up and fly on our own. Now we need to change things. We need to take a more independent approach to to a lot of things, you know. And once you've opened that door, it's hard to close it again, you know, um, because as Europe starts to make new make changes in its own structure and its own economic and its own, its own business deals and, and, uh, and economy, uh, the way it's structured, uh, you establish new, um, th- those kind of new links. And even if Trump is booted out or in, in, in a few years and someone else comes in that wants to turn it back, it's hard to, you know, because you're asking, you're asking to Europe then to undo uh, kind of established business connections that, they, that they've had to establish as a, as a result of these sanctions, you know. So it's kind of like Russia, you know, with the sanctions against Russia. Russia kind of was forced over the past three or four or five years when, since they've been sanctioning Russia, it has been forced to, to, to look eastward a lot mm-hmm. more. And even if, so now, even if um, those sanctions were lifted and, and companies wanted to get access to markets, Russia's like, sorry, uh, 
you told me I couldn't do business with you, so I looked elsewhere. I'm not going to change now just because you want me to, unless you give me a better deal. But, you know, so, yeah, it's, it's, there are, I think even despite, regardless of what happened with the, with the sanctions and the Iran deal, backing of the Iran deal and imposing sanctions on the whole world over Iran, basically, regardless of what, how far that goes, there's, there's big changes afoot, basically, and um, are, have, have more or less already been implemented, you know, especially when you look at the way, that we were, like we were saying, the way Merkel and Macron responded to it, you know, that they yeah. took it really seriously. There was a serious business for them, you know what I mean? It was like, this was a shock to the system, you know. When Merkel's new foreign minister this week made his first port of call a visit to Moscow right so again I, I, that, that that was on the basis of you know confirming their joint commitment to the Iran deal mm. but they also mentioned settling situation in Ukraine uh, Nord Stream 2 slash 3 so yeah get a I suppose get a move on with Europe you know like that's that's good talk but let's let's see uh, Let's say you do something, you know? Yeah. Um, and the other thing is uh, Iraqi elections going on. I mean, they're meant to, I think... Um, I think it's a mess from what I've heard. Yeah, 44% turnout or whatever, yeah. and it was all... I mean, the country's still in a bit of a mess, basically, so organizing anything where you get everybody out to vote is, is pretty difficult, but the 44%, but still, that's that's enough, and <laughs> Western democracy, that's enough to, to have a result, you know? So... Um, it looks like it'll be the incumbent guy. Don't know. I've heard that uh, the polls say it's going to take two Abadi. days to count. It won't be announced until tomorrow, but Abadi apparently right. is leading. We'll see. But it's also messy in that there are 87 parties and 7,000 right. candidates right. Uh, and not enough polling stations and the security curfews because there's a risk of car bomb attacks threatened by ISIS and whoever, whatever, nut jobs still are roaming around Iraq. Iraq is still, I mean, it's 15 years. It's still... I feel for Libya when I think it's going to take another 10 years to just to calm down enough to have an election. You know? Right. <clears throat> Thanks, Marka. Yeah, that's where we live in. Anyway, um, anything else we want to cover? That's good for me. All right. Well, I think we'll leave it there for this week, folks. Uh, we hope you enjoyed uh, the show and we hope you enjoyed watching us. Not that we were very necessarily very entertaining. Maybe we'll... Next week we'll do a song and dance or something, maybe halfway through, a bit of a, an intermission. Uh, uh, but we hope you like the, the the video. We're gonna still uh, we're gonna play around with it um, some more, and maybe we'll do some we'll do some live live streaming, maybe to YouTube as well, just so we can have it uploaded there as well. But we'll we'll see how it goes. So um, yeah, hope you enjoyed it. So thanks to our listeners, thanks to our chatters. We hope you, like I said, enjoy the show. We'll be back next week with another one. Until then, have a good evening. See you next week. Bye.